Hey, Marco! <laughs> Excuse me. Winter cold. <laughs> Christmas cold? Christmas cold. It's all Christmas all the time. It's tradition. I get <laughs> one every year. Just around this time. Well, you know, I, there's lots of solutions for that. I mean, you know, obviously holiday cheer. Mm-hmm. Uh, holiday rum. For those who know, I like my eggnog a little more noggy than eggy, if you know Ooh. what I mean. <laughs> we certainly do. But you know what? The, the, the best gift of all at this time of year, the thing that brings joy to all of boys and girls throughout the world. Ah, yes. Beer. Yeah, don't drink under 18, kids, in, in most countries, 21 in America. Welcome to Digital Noise. Hello, everybody. It's Marco. And it's Richard. We are indeed. How you doing, Marco? I am doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited. It's Christmas time, great time of year, and I realize that this is our last show, my last show of 2015, probably not yours. Yeah, no, it's my last but show of 2015, last show 2015 as well. Uh, yeah, well, I've uh, fulfilled all my, all my obligations that let me out of the salt mines. Yeah. Sun is letting me see daylight. Yes, and how has that been? You need, you need to Terrible. get you some sunglasses. Uh, Terrible. The one of us crew is looking really pasty this time of year. You We're guys supposed don't to. get out much. We, we are supposed to. We're not supposed to look like real human beings. Glazed and crazed. <laughs> I've seen that film. <laughs> I might have watched it and skipped forward through it. Uh, the best parts. <laughs> I'm appalled. So was I, isn't, but isn't I couldn't also stop the, myself. Isn't that also what the internet's for? Anyway... <laughs> Quickly with the housekeeping, thank you. You are listening to Digital Noise, part of the One of Us Empire. Uh, we, we really appreciate you guys listening in. Uh, we also appreciate the fact that you know this, you've chosen us over, or at the same time as other review sites. It's a big deal for us. Uh, you can help more in two ways. One, you can become a subscriber. This gives you access to the forums. It gives you access to exclusive content. It gives you, the, including the weekly breakfast pub, uh, which is our roundup of all, all news, kind of nerdy, cinematic, televisual, entertainment-based, really rather good fun, plus exclusive content like commentaries. Um, the other way you can is if you are watching this if you're on the website and looking at the reviews, you can go, oh, what happens if I scroll down the page? Oh, there are links to all the films, TV shows, and specials that we're reviewing. If you click on those links, it takes you to Amazon.com. If you buy the video there, the, the, the DVD there, or the Blu-ray there, then we actually get a share of the profits from the sale. They, yeah, which is, you know, you fisc- a fiscal miracle. Happy, you make Amazon happy. You yeah, make everybody happy. You make everybody happy. happy. And here's the even better thing. It doesn't matter what you buy. You can go there and look at the review for, you know, look, listen to the review for, say, oh, you know, Minions, which we'll be talking about later in the show. Click through, decide you don't want Minions after all, but you actually want a fridge. Well, we still get a portion of that revenue, which trust it has actually happened in the past. And come on, let's face it. You don't want to hang out with your family at the mall. You're going to do your shopping on Amazon. So while you're there... You may as well. You know. Yeah, so just click through some links and keep shopping on that trip. And, you know, you help us incredibly. Uh, 
of so, I think you know what? I think it's time. It's time for the reviews. And we are going to start off with uh, The Square, oh. which is a 2013 documentary uh, about the Egyptian crisis, and particularly centering on everything that happened in 2011 in Tahrir Square. You, you really jumped in with this one, because this, honestly, I mean, I was thinking we were going to build up to this, because in my opinion, this is probably the best movie of the stack that I reviewed this week. And honestly, if it's not the best, it's certainly the most important, mm -hmm. uh, because this is something that touches on issues that are still ongoing today, and a story that, quite frankly, for a lot of people in the world, may not be familiar with. And it's certainly a, a very even-handed approach to this material. It could have been very uh, sensationalized. Uh, and believe me, there is some very tough stuff that you will watch in this film. Uh, there's brutality, there's violence, there's passions on both sides. But at the end of the day, uh, I think it's a very fair treatment of how a lot of different groups with very different ideologies and agendas managed to overturn their government and then how that actually ended up working against them in the long run. Yeah, I mean, this is a really fascinating thing, because this yeah. is shot from the the viewpoint of yeah. people on the street. I mean, it's actually right. shot by, by protesters. Mm -hmm. um, who well, They all come together and go, look, we have to get rid of the, the old regime. This is clearly... The Mubarak regime. The Mubarak regime, which was yeah, a military dictatorship, right. effectively. And had been for, for many, many years. Decades, literally decades, of extraordinary brutality with, under the, you know, with, with the secret police just dragging people away, and you would never see them again. And this the happened. reason, and, and this is a case of a dictator who was so horrible that he actually, just by being so sheerly terrible, was able to unite a lot of disparate elements in that society to stand up against him. And what I find fascinating is, you, do, you primarily the, the characters, I say characters, but these are real people. We focus on a trio primarily. Uh, there's a, uh, a rebel by the name of... Uh, 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 Ahmed, there is, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, so I'm not going to try it. There's another gentleman who has a, kind of a, a background in the performing arts, an actor. He's kind of well-known. He's a celebrity, but he kind of puts that aside so that he can get on the street and capture these moments. Khalid uh, is, was his name. And Mahdi, who was the character I found most fascinating, uh, who was a member of the Islamic Brotherhood, uh, who finds common cause with these folks who include Coptic uh, Christians, uh, secularists, Islamists, but as we see, uh, really the undertone that happens throughout this whole film is that the Islamic Brotherhood utilizes this, they exploit this scenario, collude with the military, and the vacuum of power created by the exit of Mubarak allows uh, basically an Islamist state to take hold in Egypt, which is a scenario that we're seeing playing out in other countries that have been affected by uh, the uh, this particular moment in time, the uh, the Arab Spring, the uprising we're seeing, and this is important stuff, kids. You should watch it. It's yeah. really moving and it's really hard hitting. What's fascinating about this is that it it personalizes the political. Yeah. It picks these representative figures, and it you know even the the people who who are shooting it you know. They admit their own naivety and idealism, oh, yeah. and they say, you know, that we we thought everything was going to be fine because, you know, it, we formed this coalition of opposition. Well, the problem is that when you've got nothing to oppose, what happens to your coalition? This this is a film that poses the great political question of 
what next? Yeah. And the fact that, you know, these same people who went to Tahrir Square and thought they'd achieved something a year later are back there. Yeah. With the people who they thought were their best friends, you know, are, are now so, their political opponents. But at the same time, it points out why people like Magdi would say, you know, why nothing's changed for me. Right. I still have the same issues that I have, and doesn't make him to be some kind of he's not cartoon. a monster. No, he's he's a guy who sits there and explains very quietly, like you know, why he has taken the side that he has. I mean, it's, it's what he grew up with. Fascinating. The Brotherhood have provided. Uh, food, security, you know, medical care, all of these sorts of things uh, that people in a very impoverished society are are desperately craving. So, of course, that builds up an allegiance. And meanwhile, his friends tell him, you know, your buddies are beating us up. And he's like, and he, you can see, you know, it's killing him to think that. So it, it's a fascinating kind of scenario in which you can almost... You can almost sniff the beginnings of a civil war uh, forming. And this is a very rare thing to see uh, firsthand. And from the people who are actually involved, this is very often not an after-the-fact Talking Heads documentary where they're sort of editorializing about what occurred. This is happening at the moment. They're talking about it in cafes, on the streets, you know, hiding, you know, in burned out buildings, you know, during moments when all the electricity has been cut off. So it's not staged. It's not uh, a bunch of people sitting in a studio just remembering what happened. It's happening right in front of you. But be, be warned, as we touched on earlier, there are some sequences where they show footage of survivors and victims of the uh, institutional brutality of the state. And there is some footage here that will make you go... Yeah. That well, is not for the squeamish, but at the same no. time, it explains why people took to the street. This is, wasn't they were just a little bit upset about something. You know, these are people who are going. If, if something doesn't change, we will die. Yeah, we will get taken away by the secret police. This is an extraordinary documentary. Uh, it is, it's really strong. It was a uh, an Oscar contender last year. Um, it, last year, you know, as usually usual, the documentaries <laughs> kind of kind of uh, dis- disappointing with who they finally went with. But it was you know this was a, an extremely strong contender, well worth having in your collection. Uh, this new edition comes with uh, basically an extra film of deleted scenes yeah. um, and uh, previously unseen footage. So you're you're, you're buying an, an Oscar nominated documentary and basically getting the makings of a second Oscar nominated documentary. Yeah. This is something they pro- they could quite happily have taken out, uh, to one side. And re-edited into a TV miniseries. <laughs> this oh, is and, and extraordinary. They could actually, go back every few years oh, and yeah. just pick this story up with the same, the same uh, people in it. Because I'd be sadly, fascinated just, to see the follow-up. Yeah, sadly, you don't feel that. I mean, Israel seems to be in a worse. Uh, Egypt rather seems to be in a worse place now than it even was. Yeah. You know, in, in twenty in twenty eleven and then twenty twelve. So this is this is something where I, I think you know we really could go back and this just become the way you would, people in. The West can examine and explore the contemporary history of Israel because it's real biography going to Israel, Egypt because this format works so incredibly well yeah. and the people involved work so well and it's so powerful. And the sad thing is, I mean, you look at this and you go, "There's a very good possibility that a lot of the players in this are." Oh, oh are yeah, dead. if they aren't already, they might be. And I think that when the history of this period is written many, many years from now, I think this is going to be a primary source. Mm. I think people will reference it. And I think uh, people are going to ask some very serious questions about what happens when you have a vacuum of power and what happens when you want, go into a revolution 
or a war without an exit strategy. Uh, we're living these moments of history safely from the comfort of our living rooms. Uh, if you want to see people who really have the guts and the nerve and frankly just don't have the choice but to deal with it firsthand and personal, then this is a movie you need to see. I can't, can't agree more strongly with that. A movie you may not need to see, uh, I will be generous. I don't know whether you subjected yourself to this for the first time in about 30 years. Uh, <laughs> I know where you're going. Are you uh, talking about Remo Williams? <laughs> Remo Williams. <laughs> the, the Adventure Begins, a.k.a. Remo Williams, Unarmed and Dangerous. Wow. The the movie that was supposed to make Treat Williams a... Uh, uh, Fred Ward. Fred Ward, rather. <laughs> oh, dear, even worse. A household name. It, and... It so wants to be the start of a new didn't franchise. So desperately. And you know... So, uh, you know what's the funniest uh, thing? Joel Grey yeah, uh, got a... <laughs> he got... Got a Golden Globe nomination for... He is really good in this and very memorable... I still meet people today who quote his lines from this. He's very memorable in a role that would never be allowed to play now. Uh, now that when we, I think we're a little bit more conscientious about uh, casting uh, uh, racial stereotypes. But he's a Korean. He's this Korean gentleman named Chun. And he's very, <laughs> yes. very funny. Joel, Joel, Gray, Joel Gray, most famous for, <laughs> for playing uh, the... the, the um, the, uh, the, the night singer, the nightclub, the nightclub singer. host in Cabaret, in Cabaret. <laughs> as yeah. an old Korean gentleman, sweet Moses, and people complained about about uh, whitewashing in the casting of Avatar. Good the, grief! The, he's a sort of Mister Miyagi esque figure, and my understanding—he's seen Mister Miyagi. Yes, figure. he's very funny. Uh, but yeah, there's part of you that cringes and go, and you know, all the other characters are like. Well, you know, just say hello to your slant-eyed friend for me. And, and this oh my is one God, of the this good is guys. so racist. They just don't realize how terrible they sound now. This because is so racist. It is. But, you know, it is so ridiculous. It is so implausible. And yet, it is good, cheesy fun. It was originally based on a book or a series that yes. I understand is... It sounds like some weird cross between... Doc Savage and, and some other crazy crap. It I don't was, even know. It, but it never really picked up. And, and now, from the last I heard, Shane Black was being looked at to reboot it. Well, the the Destroyer books are good, sleazy, pulp fun. So they, you yeah, have they're read basically, them. I have not. Yeah, I, I've read a couple of them way back when. And the basic plot here is that Fred Ward uh, plays a cop with a terrible mustache uh, <laughs> who is killed by nefarious <coughs> agencies within the U.S. government. He's killed by some street thugs through who, some kind of plot contrivance. Who are actually seemingly working for the U.S. Yeah. government. It's never or they're there clearly when, defined. Yeah, it, it's bizarre. And he wakes up and he seems to actually be okay with this. Yeah, and well, he seems most annoyed that they shave his mustache. Yeah, they shaved off his mustache. They changed his nose. Well, it was a nose. great mustache. Great mustache. It's stellar. And uh, he's this, there's nothing in that opening scene to make you think he's a super cop. Yeah. He's like sitting there in a squad car, like trying to drink his coffee and eat a donut, and some cops or some crooks run by, and he's like, eh, maybe I'll get to it. Eventually, he has to get up. But yeah, there's nothing in the setup that makes us think he is a worthy person uh, to be chosen for this top to, secret to be, organization. To be sent off to be trained by utterly unconvincing Asian Asian gentleman yeah. Joel and Gray. Wilfred Brimley, let's Wilfred not forget. Br Wilfred Brimley turns up. Of course. Um, as. 
pretty much Wilford Brimley. He's always Wilford Brimley. Um, and then you have... There is a plot that involves the old Star Wars initiative. Um, Yes, I was surprised they actually say that by name. Yeah, Um, which wasn't in the books, because the books are are earlier and sleazier and cheaper. Um, And basically, there's a lot of sequences of Fred Ward looking grumpy um, as... Doing very implausible martial arts. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of really nice nice sequences, like, for example... When he's on a const- he's on the Statue of Liberty yes. as it's under uh, being repaired and yes. standing on impossibly and, tall and there's powers. some footage that was shot on location, I believe. Oh yeah, with a stuntman, a very obvious stuntman. Oh yeah, but this was also one of the problems for me uh, because it's such a memorable sequence. It's right there on the cover photo. I mean, uh, the DVD cover. It was the poster for the movie, and it sort of became the selling signature image for the film. The problem is the movie never tops that sequence, yeah. and it's about smack dab in the middle. So it really kind of you get a lot of you know diminishing returns from that point. There is a plot; it's perfunctory. A lot of it really, and, and really, it moves very, very slow. Oh, a lot it's... of it is just the the interplay between you know. Imagine a middle aged grumpy New York cop playing the Karate Kid and Joel Grey playing Mr. Miyagi, and you get a lot of the inherent humor of their interplay. And, and Kate Mulgrew turning up and, and being being given terrible lines to deliver and clearly looking pained about going the, 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 the entire thing. The, I mean, the, the selling point at the end of the day for this is Joel Grey just looking at you and going, you know what, I know that I'm being given the, the worst role for a white actor since the apartment and I'm just going to chew the scenery I'm going to be obscene uh, there is, there's a lot of jokes about how do you make a woman orgasm without even touching her yeah. all this not and like it's, and he watches he's a, a lot of soap up he clearly knows this is this is complete oh, bullshit yeah. and he should be ashamed of himself and I think if you could have recognized who he was at any point during this film he probably would have gone screw it I'm going home yeah. I, got, I will clear the check and the fact that he gets a golden globe shows something weird about 1980 cinema and shows something very weird about the golden globes yeah you guys are crazy that movie's awesome shut up know. Chris I'm saying I enjoyed it I'm just saying it's not a great movie it, is, it, it hasn't aged well, but it still has its charms. It, I think it would be a hard sell for somebody who's used to a faster-moving action cinema of today. Or, well, a fast, the faster-moving action cinema of the 80s. Even by 80s standards, this was tectonically I slow. I forget who directed it, but the name was very familiar, and I uh, want to say it was like a Bond director. Uh, and I could be... Guy Hamilton. Guy Hamilton. I want to see he, he directed yeah, the old Bonds. He directed four Bond movies. That was where I knew him. And so that's why the yeah, big... Yeah, he directed act- Goldfinger, Diamonds of Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden yeah. Gun. Yeah, which is why I think the big sort of Hitchcockian homage sequence works really well. It's it's everything after that that just kind of... He kind of runs out of ideas. He also directed Force 10 from Navarone, and it's considering that's one of the best war movie, wartime movies ever made. You about, of, no, you're thinking the guns of Navarone. No, he made Force 10 from Navarone. All right, I've always heard people diss Force 10 from Navarone. Force 10 from Navarone is... The one with Harrison Ford. Yeah, and, uh, it's complete garbage. People but it's hated it. Wonderful. But, but I loved it as a kid. It's, you know, it's like, let's go kill Nazis, and that's it. Kind of, you know, it's not like deep and meaningful World War II. It's like, no. let's go kill some Nazis. Great fun. Yeah, it was Carl Come. Weathers and uh, uh, Robert Shaw, I want to say, is one of his last roles, but I could be wrong on that. But yeah, Guy Hamilton, classic. No, Robert Shaw. 
Robert Shaw, he actually died before the film, before Force 10 was released. Oh, okay. A classic, you know, director of the old Hollywood style, very efficient filmmaking, but also, you know, I think what he realized was he had an action comedy and he emphasized the comedy and he had a really good interplay between his two leads and so it gets a little self-indulgent. This is a good have a pizza and beer movie. Have some friends over and kind of... Uh, relive your misspent years as a child watching Showtime After Dark. You know, I'm, I'm going to... Wait a minute. I was watching something else on Showtime After Dark. There we go. Uh, I'm, I'm going to move uh, move us Moving on to an, on, an action yes. film that in 30 years nobody is going to look back on kindly. In fact, I think by the end of it you aren't looking back on it kindly. You're just looking back on it and going, huh, that, that happened at me. You were lucky enough to not catch momentum. Oh, no, that was not on my list. Oh, you're a lucky man. Um, This film starts with seemingly a bunch of people in splinter cell cosplay robbing a bank, and it goes horribly wrong. And then one of them takes their mask off for for no good reason, and it turns out it's uh, Olga Korylenko. Ah, sorry if I mangled her name. Um, And you're like... How did your bangs not get messed up under your mask? That's the first thing that went through my head. Um, She's highly skilled. And it then... It it goes on. It goes on. This is what happens in the film. It goes on, and it doesn't need to. Hmm. Uh, somehow, you end up in a situation where she's on the run with the diamonds... And James Purfoy, who has been sent to as a cleaner to try and get the diamonds back, because, and this is where I, st- I started losing the will to live slightly, uh, Morgan Freeman, who appears <coughs> in completely separately shot scenes, right. possibly from a different film, almost definitely not from him believing he was going to be involved with anything else here, you know, um, is a politician who is trying to use the boosted diamonds to start World War Three. There is no logical progression to this whatsoever. And I'm, I'm sat there going, did I miss something in the last scene? Did the disc jump or something? No. This is one of the most bafflingly incoherent pieces of contemporary action cinema that I've seen. Uh, I don't know why it's as bad as it is. It's almost enthralling. You're kind of going, why are any of you doing this? Uh, they try shot? and build. Uh, it's um, it a South African American co-production ah, okay. directed by Stephen Campanelli, and I know his name from somewhere. Something tells me they must have. This must be like during that period when uh, what was that horrible director who, Ila Yuli, Uwe Boll. Uwe Boll. You know, is like is South Africa now just putting out some really great you know tax incentives so people are just like making movies on the cheap, trying to make a fast buck. Uh, seemingly. Because I I keep going to the video store and seeing, like, DVDs <laughs> on the shelf, in invariably in the action uh, section, often shot in some foreign country, and with, like, some big Hollywood star on the cover. Yeah, you, you know, like Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, Danny Glover, or even uh, <coughs> uh, John Cusack. And I'm thinking, you know... 
these guys are must well, be getting guess, a really nice vacation to yeah, just go out South to where Bolivia where we make summer. a movie. Yeah, and yeah. I, the food is apparently incredible. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you suspect that was what was going on here, but I don't... I honestly do not think Morgan Freeman was anywhere near the set in South Africa. Really? <laughs> it really is. It feels, it feels like a... They you got have a nice my, room in your house. We'll just shoot it there. Yeah, I think he was shooting something else, and they just went, "Hey, look, just read these lines." And here's a check. Don't ask why. James Purfoy, who really should know better at this point in his career, it's rather tragic that he he was stuck with this. Yeah, Campanelli is actually a camera <coughs> operator by trade, and he's worked oh. with Clint Eastwood for years, you know, starting with uh, Bridges of Madison County. So, so he, and suddenly, and he actually had to leave American Sniper. Uh, that he was working on to go work on this. This may not have been a good career choice. Mm. I think you probably were doing better there. I mean, I can understand why you'd you'd want to push yourself, but this is like... I think the thing that this reminds me most of recently is um, Hitman Agent 47 for Mm. sheer boring incoherence because uh, I can, ha- yeah. There's almost a thrill when you're when somebody's plot doesn't make any sense, but nobody here seems to care about what they're doing. I just assume these films are, you know, they first shoot a trailer and then just come up with interstitial scenes to kind of tie those moments together and then market it as a movie. Yeah. I mean, the few films of that nature I've seen, and, and we've had a couple on this show where I'm just like, I know a bunch of people must have gotten paid on this, but man. It's hard to see why anybody would care about this movie. So, thank you for taking that bullet for me. Yeah. <laughs> now let's move on to a director that you know people do know uh, and who is there's few people who split audiences quite so much as uh, Eli Roth. I was going to say he's a love him hate him director. There, I, I, there's yeah. no middle line uh, with. Uh, I with haven't him. seen a film of his that I love, uh, and I haven't. Let's put it this way. I've seen uh, enough of his films, maybe two or three, where I go, I recognize the competence. I recognize the skill set. I don't particularly like what he's putting out, which, you know, he certainly has every right to do. Uh, I think what I like about Eli is the fact that he's gone out to really bring back kind of an element of like, you know, the director in the trenches really backing smaller directors particularly sure. uh, some South American guys who you know, otherwise would not be this film also feels like it was a European co-production with all the Spanish names attached to I it think actually, and Spanish actors uh, in fact apart from that opening it's... shot of the Hollywood Hills sign I, I strongly suspect the film wasn't even shot in America yeah oh I'm, I'm fairly sure it was uh, yeah probably shot pretty much everywhere other than <laughs> I'd probably uh, he's spending a lot, in Chile, a lot of time in Chile so I suspect it was actually maybe in Chile. it's Chile okay uh, yeah. but the basic idea is that um, <coughs> Kino Reeves who I will forgive pretty much everything at the moment uh, post uh, John Wick mm-hmm. which I just <laughs> oh now, now I'm sad because I'm thinking of John Wick and I want to watch that instead it looks like he kept his John Wick beard like maybe oh. this is what he made on the weekend yeah, he wasn't shooting like, John Wick it's like am I, am I, am I, am I, it's, you'll spend most well, of the, the movie time in a chair yeah he's got John Wick sad hair as well yeah he's like oh my hair's sad um, although and, I must say and this is not a spoiler but there's a dog in this movie and I just thought I kind of made a mental note to myself. Is something horrible going to happen to Keanu Reeves' dog in every movie now after John Wick? I won't say anything further, but... But, you know... You know. 
Brian, it was just Brian the Salisbury first thing that went through my mind. Brian Salisbury's ears just pricked up. He said, whoa, oh, they're doing something to the dog. But he plays a guy called Evan who has a picture-perfect life oh, yeah. uh, with his wife, played by Ignacia Alamand, who... Uh, Smoking hot woman. Yep. Who, also uh, a, a, an artist. Artist. He is, he, and he's an architect, but he used to be a DJ. Yeah. <laughs> Two because, wonderful photogenic kids. Oh, my God. Ridiculously sad. Although, you know... You know when you... Actually, in fact, you know when you go to the uh, you go to Michael's or, or Target and you mm. get a frame and there's a picture yeah. of a family? It's them. This is them. They yeah, are the it's, perfect family. They actually just go to the store and get pictures of themselves out of the out of the frames and, and i see keanu working in this film more than i normally see him performance wise but oddly enough i especially the moments in the beginning with the kids and the wife where it's kind of in just this banal you know and it's it, long setting it's very long. long it's very long to, it takes a long time to get to where it's going but in those moments i think are i think those are some of the most successful parts of the film and of his performance because it's very rare where I go, oh, Keanu Reeves feels like a human being in this movie. Yeah. He seems like a normal guy. He's like a dad who's playing monster with his kids and, you know, and trying to get it on with his hot wife, but he can't because the kids, the kids are, are knocking are on the door. Because it's Father's and, Day. You know, and... But anyway, so yeah, they, yes. they, the, the, the ridiculously hot wife yeah. and the ridiculously photogenic um, children go away for the weekend, leaving him at home to and, just to just to uh, you know sit there with his three D printer. Mm-hmm. He's uh, got a lot of work to do. He's got a lot of work to do on a very on a dark and rainy night because he's a very serious man. Very dark, stormy night. Rains all night long, which makes me realize that this is a complete work of fiction based on everything I've heard about the weather in California. <laughs> <laughs> because it rains all night long. All night long. Uh, and two young women turn up. Uh, Genesis, played by Lorenza Itzo, and Belle, played by Ana de Amas. Um, wearing not a lot, completely soaked. They are every jailbait male fantasy. Yeah. They knock on his door, and sure enough, he lets them in. Fool. They're lost. Blah, blah, blah. He's a decent guy. He's a nice guy. Sure, you can come. Sure, you can use a towel. And, of course, in a very brief moment, of, it doesn't take very long for these girls to start kind of talking very frankly and arousing perhaps some long-buried desires in this guy, which are innocent enough at first. But then the young ladies just ratchet it up until they've basically and this is not a spoiler because it's really an, you need this for the plot to advance they basically seduce this guy yeah. the plot kicks in about i'd say a third of the way into the movie the next day yeah. when the nightmare begins i mean for for me actually the best part of this was that three-hander and it's a yes. it's a single scene where there just, you know, sat there and gently ramping up the sexual tension until you reach the... You realize, like, it's actually got really awkward. Oh, yeah. And that, you know... He spends a lot of know, time moving. Moving seats. Yeah. And that, you know, that little thing of him just like, you know, no, I'm not even comfortable in my own home. Yeah. Is a very nice way of setting up what happens next, where you suddenly... Where you realize how little he is in control of the situation. Absolutely. I, yeah, I mean, the... Where this kind of falls down, the next day when everything goes off the rails, quite spectacularly, um, you know, it, it, this is a film where you're kind of going, so is the moral that you can't trust women, or is the moral that you can't trust men, 
or is it the moral that everybody's quite awful? Uh, and this being Eli, who I think actually likes people but doesn't really have much faith in them, I think it's C. Um, so it, it gets pretty squalid pretty fast. <laughs> I, I thought my biggest old, my biggest complaint about this, I, it's a good-looking movie. I think it's well-directed. I think it's well-shot. I think the performances are genuinely good. The, the two young ladies are very, very committed. Uh, suffice it to say, they are going to uh, punish this man for his transgressions. Uh, and they will lie, cheat, torture, terrify, humiliate, anything they can do to turn his life inside out. And, and there's an interesting sort of idea there because it asks, you know, to what extent is this guy responsible? It, 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 in a way, it's almost like a, a he said, she said kind of story, and it very quickly becomes that. For me, the problem is that this movie, and you touched on this, it's morally incoherent. I don't know what they're trying to tell me about this guy. You know, is he guilty? And, and again, I can't talk about it too much without revealing a lot of the movie. Uh, if this is your kind of movie, by all means, watch it. You might get something out of it. I myself was a little bit let down because it. there are a lot of tantalizing clues as we move forward in the plot you know there is a reference to an associate uh, there is reference to uh, perhaps these young ladies were doing surveillance and had plotted this in advance we don't know why again I'm totally okay with terror and horror being ambiguous without being spoon-fed a reason for every little thing that's happening that kind of keeps the tension and the terror intact. But then don't give me all these little side details that suggest that there's something else going on. You know, because that makes it feel like, to me, you failed in the execution. Yeah. You raised more questions than you answered. If you're going to... If you're going to go for ambiguous, then you got to nail that tone just right. And I don't think this movie succeeds at that. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe uh, you know Eli will uh, explain that better in the uh, and I think it's just, in the commentary. Yeah, you know, I, there is, there, this does come with a commentary track, uh, also deleted scenes of the commentary track, and a making of featurette. You know, so you know the standard uh, affairs that you would expect I, with I, this. I've, you know. Always, whenever listening to an interview with him, he always strikes me as a very intelligent guy and very thoughtful uh but to me it's like you're you shouldn't have to explain this movie to me yeah for me to see the value in it and to and that ultimately is where this movie succeed uh fails there may be a very strong reason why he made it but i, I i'm at a loss to explain why it was made yeah but hey if you like the guy if you're a completist or you just like seeing hot chicks torture keanu reeves Hey, who doesn't like this that? This is the movie for you. Kind of the uh, the same, same but different uh, in terms of both uh, man caught between two women, and uh, I'm not quite sure why this is being made at this point in the history of the world. Because for me, Knock Knock is actually it's it's a it's a, it's a Cinemax movie. It's a, it's a, a yeah. you know it's, it's very much. It's almost softcore. Yeah, well, it gets pretty. I'd say, arguably, it's it's definitely softcore at several points, and then it it gets into a kind of horror thriller territory. Um, Well, that's an old exploitation gamut too. It's like it's like, oh, we're going to titillate you, and now we're going to make you feel bad for enjoying this. Yeah. Whereas some kind of beautiful, which uh, you know, I yet again, oh, another took it took a bullet Uh, for you on this one. Um, It's Pierce Brosnan 
Selma Hayek and Jessica Alba oh. in a vaguely hilarious romantic comedy. I saw a trailer for that. It looked terrible. It, yeah, well, it's not terrible. I wouldn't say it's terrible. Uh, the basic plot here is that uh, Pierce Brosnan plays <coughs> a uh, a college professor in in London, where we still call them universities, uh, who's kind of been working away in the trenches trying to get you know, get a better position, uh, but mainly uses his job so he can bang his students, uh, which he normally does for one night only. Uh, and then Jessica Alba turns up, who amazingly can still pass as a 20 as a 22 year old uh, grad student um who has been seduced by his love with love of the romantic poets neither her body nor her talents have matured much i think no she's pretty much yeah i'm she's, sure she's serviceable in this she, she she's there she's on screen uh i'll give her that much um well and this is part of the problem this is one of these films that covers a long period of time and you're not quite sure if they knew how to handle the pacing of it quite right mm. because they're together for a while and then she gets pregnant and they have the kid and suddenly it's three years later and you're ah, like yes okay uh we're, we're narratively seemingly still in the middle of the first act i'm not quite sure how this is fitting together then it turns out that she uh, has been having an affair. The irony, because he was the womanizer. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, see? See where they're going with this. And he decides that he's going to be as grumpy as possible and stick around uh, so that, and gets the house next door so that he can uh, look, after, look after their child. Uh, enter Salma Hayek, uh, overacting dramatically all the way through as her... Uh, as. Uh, Jessica Rabba's character's sister, who he had previously tried to hit on in actually one of the best scenes in this, um, when he didn't realise that uh, this was his his future sister-in-law. Yeah. And that actually works well because you've seen two actors who, when you give them this kind of material, can actually do kind of mature sensuality really well. You know, and, and then that's yeah. the last time you see that because it starts to fall into hijinks at this point because they suddenly start feeling but, but, that they have romantic yeah, attraction. But you just said they're, they're, they're more... A- you imply that they're more age-appropriate, Salma Hayek and, and Pierce Brosnan, and I think there's still like a 20, 30-year gap there. Yeah, but he's looking a little younger in huh? this. He, I mean, it's Pierce Brosnan. He's aging right. extraordinarily well. Yes, he um, is. As has Salma know, Hayek. And that's the thing. The, it, it all seems... It's not quite clear how old she's supposed to be. Well, I mean, um, she's got to be, you know, within five to ten years of the Jessica Alba Well, character. no, because one of the plot points there is that they actually have the, the same father, but they were... Ah, he, was, he was having... A, he conveniently was, explaining he had the difference two, in age and appearance. He had two, uh, he had two different wives gotcha. at the same time. Um, yeah, so there's questions of betrayal, and there's kind of... It's never treated too seriously. It's It's very... It's trying for whimsical. Um, <coughs> it tries to turn into a comedy about you know about relationships and a bit of a sex comedy. Uh, unsurprisingly, both the female leads get naked, uh, as do several extras. And you look at this and go, "Pretty sure we're not seeing Pierce Brosnan's man parts," and you don't. So there's that issue there as well. You know, I'm not sure how much of a selling so, except point. Except for the nudity, you've just described the kind of movie my mother would like to watch. <laughs> 
which is not, by the way, a very sterling recommendation on my part. Yeah, well, well what's even more weird is that Malcolm McDowell turns up as Pierce Brosnan's father, chewing the scenery. Is there any other Malcolm McDowell mode these days? No, no. It's pretty much all he does now. He just kind of turns up and swears and uh, tries to sleep with anything I mean, that's around. he did Alec and, you know... Clockwork Orange, and he's just been ratcheting it up ever since. Yeah, I th- honestly, this feels like you could have dropped this uh, in a pile of those kind of later mid nineties romantic comedies when no people seem to be running out of truly original plots. Yeah, uh, and you had those really uncomfortable Meg Ryan rom coms that you're just like, do I? But, but there Am I supposed also, to really feel like I care about these characters or that I really want them to be happy? Because they all seem kind of I, awful. Whenever I see any film like this, and, and granted, I didn't watch this one, but I always consider to myself who the audience for this movie is. And lately, there's a lot of films that that I don't go to, that I'm not interested in, but they do seem to be aimed at their romantic comedies or romantic comedies with a slightly dramatic heft to it aimed at at an older, grayer audience. And maybe that's where it's going for, based on th- what you're telling me. I think that's where, what it's going for. I don't think it manages it. Yeah. Because it's oddly charmless. Mm. Um, that it, it doesn't really seem to know quite what tone to strike. I mean, by the end, it actually becomes a deportation drama. <laughs> Uh, which is very... He's looking at it going, I, do you know who your audience is? And I honestly can't tell i mean it falls somewhere between slapstick sex comedy and you know there's little moments where i go you know you could remake the thomas crown affair with with uh, brosnan and and uh, hayek and it would actually work extraordinarily well um but i'm not quite sure what you were going for here because nothing seems to gel yeah and it you know it's it's a nice idea but it's you know you know, it's it's talent wasted to a great degree. Um, a, a, a film that's um, very different because it knows what its tone is going to be and I think it's going to sit well with some people and really alienate some others um, is uh, One-Eyed Girl. Yeah. Which I, is uh, the debut feature by um, Australian director <coughs> called Neil Matthews. Yeah, before we saw The Square, because uh, we watched this in two shifts... Uh, in my first, the first shift, uh, first pile, uh, this was actually, I thought, going to be the better movie of the bunch until The Square showed up, yeah. and that quickly toppled it. <laughs> uh, because I do have some problems with this, namely, I think it's a horrible title uh, that really never goes anywhere. One-Eyed Girl, there's an image at the beginning which turns out to be pointless, and there is a ham-handed piece of dialogue that's used to kind of insert it into the narrative late in the game, well, actually, which I, are awful. Because I've, I've talked to Nick Matthews, but, and this and this came up. The, um, the one-eyed girl... It actually came from... He had a, an, a, an... The original image that he had in his head for this film was a, a woman running away from a farm uh, saying to herself, in the, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed girl is queen. And that was the genesis of it. Uh-huh. And it, he's, I think it, 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 this is an overhang of that that yeah. may not necessarily It's one of those things be. that should have been pruned out. Yeah. Because at some point, really I, when, the, when the character finally does say it, well, you know what they say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed woman is queen. I'm like, okay, first, nobody actually says that. Yeah, clumsy. And you just added it in 
And there is, not a spoiler, at the beginning of the movie, there is a picture, or, or a there is a moment where you see a, a young lady who's dead, a different lady, missing an eye. I thought, oh, this is the one-eyed girl. No, she just incidentally ha- is missing an eye. I don't know how she's missing an eye because she jumped off a building, but hey, it's awkward and clumsy and just there to kind of make you think about the title. Getting all the title nonsense out of the way. I actually think this is a very solid film uh, that took me by surprise uh, more than once. And really, uh, in it, there is a... And I cannot remember the actor's name or the role. Yeah, uh, the character's called Travis. Travis. There is a young doctor, Travis. He is a psychiatrist. As we find out in the beginning of the film, Travis, he works with some very mentally unstable people. Uh, And one of these classic scenario, he basically gets into a relationship with one of his clients, something you're never supposed to do. Tragedy occurs, and he just goes into a downward spiral of depression and guilt, self-recrimination and drug use. Eventually, he's you know, told he has to take some time off, and in the course of events, he runs into what at first I thought was a church, but is probably better described as some kind of cult? Yeah, uh, which is... Again, this is offer first. himself. It's a combination. It's sort of an AA cult. It's crossed with a boot camp. It's a yeah. The the central figure of this is a guy called Father Jay, who you discover is a an ex soldier who has formed this kind of very aggressive self help cult. Yes, um, that takes you out in the middle of nowhere and basically beats the hell out of you until you become a little bit more self reliant. And as you go on, you discover that Travis, why he is attracted to this kind of thing. This guy who basically, he's the person who's supposed to fix people and he failed so badly that he ends up breaking himself so that he doesn't feel like he can rely on what everything else that he's used before. All this psychotherapy, all this training, he just feels he's got to walk away from that completely and fall in with these other people. And, And, you know, Jay's technique is the classic break somebody down to the, their Mm -hmm. lowest ebb and then, rebuild them yeah. well there comes a point where where Travis has to go is this the healthy thing to do and more importantly if you're taking somebody to the, their lowest ebb aren't you the ultimate abuser in this situation and at that point as somebody who is there to whose purpose in life has been to help people does he sit back yeah. you know when does he be, you have to say no, 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 no. That Possibly you're all help, just crazy guys. That desire to help does reestablish itself. But he, I was about to use a metaphor that I won't use now. No, go on. Because it might give away, it's a spoiler. Ah, uh, then don't. So I won't say <laughs> that. Suffice it to say, he buys into the program. At, after, much resi- <laughs> after much resistance, he finally begins to follow Jay's teachings. He finally begins to come to terms with himself. And at first... For about a, the middle third of this movie, I started thinking, oh, maybe this is what, is this some kind of like a, a I don't know what the right term would be, but, you know, it, it felt like, uh, almost like they were promoting this type of therapy. It's like, oh, this is working. It works for him. I'd be terrified to go there, but he seems genuinely like he's getting his act together. He's found people that he likes. He's found people who he feels comfortable with. He's learned to forgive himself. He's learned to love himself again. He's learned to let go of his fear and all of this other claptrap. So at some point, 
now that he's seen the light, he witnesses something that questions, that forces him to question Jay's authority and Jay's, honestly, Jay's intentions. And like you said, he finally, now that he's healed himself, he can start thinking about helping people again. And he has to make that choice. You, I turn against this man who's helped me find myself or do I let it go? And apparently a lot of other people in their community have been letting it go. That's, that's one of the interesting things about this is that there is a certain level of ambiguity. Yeah. Uh, it never says, you know, Travis was right in his old life. It never says Jay is right. It never says Ethan is wrong. It, it, yeah. it says, well, it, you know, it leaves you to make that own, you know, draw your own conclusions, yeah. particularly when you know everything comes to the, the final powder keg moment. Yeah. You, you look and go, well... You bought into this, and you think that it, you thought it worked five minutes ago. What is it that you now think doesn't work? Right. And it, I, I think it, you know, it plays with that moral ambiguity extraordinarily well. This is a you know for a first time director, this oh, yeah. is a really really solid. Um, there are elements of it that bug me, but it was very strong. Yeah. It almost was a, my pick of the week. There's a great. There's a couple of great sequences, particularly one uh, where Jay and Travis and another member of the the group are out in the woods mm. with a rifle and they're just all lying on the ground hunting. Yeah. And Jay has a phenomenal monologue which is really yeah. wonderful. The actor really plays Jay is really very good. Explains, oh, Actually, oh, performances across the board in this movie are good. This is a solid, solid film. Uh, it's a good set as well from Dark Sky. Uh, commentary uh, by the director, the writer and the producer. Uh, a whole bunch of featurettes. Yeah, uh, this is a good little movie and yeah. I, I, I'm suitably impressed. Um... Moving on to a film about a, a guy who probably could have done with some more help from other people, uh, the phenomenal Jacko. This is, uh, mm. you know, you went with The Square as your pick of the week. Uh, I got to go with Jacko as my, as my pick of the week. Uh, That's this the one is, I enjoyed more. Yeah. But it, it's not as important. As oh, I think, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, The Square is phenomenally important. You know, uh, when, when you told me, oh, the, one of the movies is, uh, you know, the Jacko Pastoria story. I actually misread your email, and for a second I thought, oh, you mean that guy, the, the Paralympian, they just, you know, convicted no. <laughs> for murder? It's like, damn, those documentary filmmakers work fast if they've already got a DVD out. Of course, that only took me about a second. Then I was like, oh, Jocko Pistorius, the yeah. legendary jazz bass player. The, the, basically the inventor of the fretless, um, one of the kings of jazz fusion Mm -hmm. uh, an incredible innovator and pioneer. Um, and when you, you know, in the, in the way of these documentaries, you get a whole bunch of, of famous musicians going, yeah. oh, this is why this this guy was really important. And you know, quite often you're like, you, you feel when it's like a guitarist or a drummer mm. that they're saying it because oh, somebody called, called right. me. But when you have uh, Robert Trujillo from Metallica and Suicidal yeah. Tendencies. Who was one of, the, one of the producers of this yeah. film. Sting. Uh, who, he actually also uh, he also Bootsy has Collins. one yes. of Jacob Pastorius's basses, right. well, and I've seen him play it live, and you uh, can see that he looks so happy when he's playing it because well, it's it's a historical artifact. Yeah, Bootsy Collins, Flea, uh, Herbie Hancock, um, Carlos uh, Santana, Wayne Shorter. I mean, these are some big names in the jazz field and members of Weather Report. Mm. Uh, whenever I, I'm a sucker for music documentaries, even though I haven't been as familiar with Jaco Pistorius's work, because honestly, it's taken me many years to kind of begin to appreciate jazz fusion after the bop era. I never was terribly really impressed with fusion. Uh, 
my memories of like seventies jazz fusion was shit like Chuck Mangione, which by <laughs> the way I won't spoil it, but uh, they ask Jocko in an archival interview about Chuck Mangione, and he just has a great line about Chuck Mangione. Uh, but to me, whenever I see a documentary like this, I usually feel the same way you do, that these are just a bunch of guys who got the call, and they thought, hey, you know, I'm flattered to be asked. I'll go. These names, I think, are significant, and also what I appreciate whenever I see a documentary like this, it would be obvious to bring out the guys he worked with, the guys who work in his field. They do that. To me, a testament to a musician's level of influence is not only the caliber of musicians that are invited to speak, but the variety of genres that are represented. I mean, you have punk, you have jazz, you have funk, you have country, blues, rock and roll, R&B, you know, all of these things, and which is very appropriate because this is something that he was very good at, which was, you know, growing up in Florida listening to R&B, but also picking up Cuban jazz and Cuban songs from, you know, because Cuba, of course, was only a few miles away, so they could pick up these Cuban signals, and those rhythms influenced his playing. Here's a guy who synthesized a lot of different styles to create something new, and that whose influence is still felt today. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, an amazing documentary, much like... Um the square it basically comes with a second disc of material, yes. which is well worth. It's like a whole other movie. Plus, uh, it also comes with a download code for the soundtrack, which is basically the best of Jaco Pistorius. Yeah, this guy were you know he was so incredibly influential. He was really the first superstar bassist, but the story is not simply about that. This is about a guy who goes off the rails so badly and you can see all the people around him going you are one of the most talented people we know why can't you get your shit together and it goes into the tensions and the the people around him who he had great collaborative relationships with but the collaboration was built around antagonism quite often and the fact that he wanted to be the first basis that people could name. He was he, actually he notorious was, for introducing himself as, hi, I'm Jaco Pistorius, the world's greatest bass player. Yeah. And he was doing this when he was like in his 20s. Yeah. And it, but the thing was, he was. And, and like, you know. I mean, you, can, you listen to him and you listen to what people were doing before and there are there are solid basis. But what he does is say, there is this is not just a thing that you have making a plump, plump, plump noise He's in the background. He's often referenced as the Jimi Hendrix of the bass. Yeah. Uh, and rightly so. This is a this is a great documentary. I mean, I mean, honestly, this is my pick of the week. Uh, and but it's so close with the square. <laughs> like, the square really, is most important. The square is more. The square but the is Jocko more, one. I would watch again. Yeah, that, that is the big difference. One is entertaining now, and one is enlightening. Now, the Jocko story is entertaining. Yes, but we shouldn't make it all sunshine and light. There is a, a darker story here. I think they do it with a fairly light touch. But uh, as we, it is inevitably with these kind of stories, there tends to be a movement towards the tragic. Uh, you have a guy who's very driven, who's very ambitious, uh, who dies very young. That's not a spoiler. Uh, you know, and towards the end of his life, he's not feeling appreciated by the record label that he's on. He's not, uh, he's not feeling uh, that he's advancing the way he wants to. He's also dealing with alcohol and drug dependency I, and I, frankly a, a chemical imbalance that I, I think I is the one true. of the interesting things was that when they talk about 
you know, his relationship with the label, there is a certain point where you where you go, well, yes, you really were trying to push the boundaries of what could be done with bass, and you're looking at other intr- in- instruments. You know, this is a guy who wanted to basically do a concept album on, on um, the uh, steel drum. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't gloss over the fact that the studios go, that the label is going. This is unreleasable, and I don't know why you think that we're going to give you a huge amount of money to give us something that we know nobody's going to want. Yeah. It doesn't gloss over the fact that this is a guy who, while a genius, is going down such a particular path and that he can't understand why the label isn't prepared to follow him. And he just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And it, this is, this is a, a tragedy about a massively influential figure mm-hmm. that because it's the bass, that I think it's the great ignored instrument. It and is. I think that's yeah. why this is... This is you know, the bass is usually resigned to the rhythm section. It's usually like a counterpoint to the drum. And, you know, it's, it's not the sexy thing. Yeah. It's always the lead guitarist or the singer. Uh, I mean, and there have been significant basses. I mean, Charles Mingus comes to mind, or uh, I believe it was uh, Blanton, with the, who played for Duke Ellington, was one of these players right. who said, "Oh, I'm not going to just play, you know, just the dum dum dum." It's like I'm actually going to play the melody. I'm going to play this like a horn. I'm going to pl- actually the, the lead. Peter, is, Peter Hook from Joy Division. You actually listen actually, to Joy, Peter Hook is you, you listen to Peter. Yeah, you actually listen to him, and, and one of the things that's so important about how. Joy Division and New Order write their music is that uh, you're actually leaving uh, the rhythm to the guitar most of the time, yeah. and that Hooky is actually playing the riff, right? Which he is, is playing the, the melodic line, yeah. which is very rarely done. And fortunately, you know, they did the really smart thing and they fired that guy. Yeah. So now <laughs> you can go watch New Order without the guy who you know made them so. Well, good. technically, but he quit the, because he couldn't yeah. handle. He couldn't stand dealing with them anymore. Yeah. yeah. In fact, if you want, that's to read, a whole other story. If, yeah. uh, if you want to, uh, to read a couple of really good things, <laughs> uh, Peter Hook. Um, has actually written two autobiographies, right. one about his time in Joy Division, which is phenomenal, another one about um, the uh, running the Hacienda Club. Oh, God. Um, I'm amazed uh, he remembers entitled, any of that. Which I think it's actually entitled uh, The Hacienda or How to How to Lose a Fortune While, while um, uh, Running a Club. That, in fact, I think, uh, Chris, if you want to put the links to those two yeah, those are great, but, at the bottom of those, because they're both ultimately... That's fascinating uh, stories. Yeah, they are awesome, great, how the Blue fun, Monday readable books. And if, you, if you're looking 12 for... 12-inch ends up bankrupting them yeah. at the, <laughs> while it's the biggest-selling album in the world. Yeah, they, the biggest-selling 12-inch of all time. Yes. <laughs> Email me the links right when you get on. Yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I was Chris in the background, folks. Yeah, this this is a phenomenal documentary. Uh, really, just you know, cannot uh, recommend this. Yeah. Uh, and and while it does go, it does ultimately have a sad ending, which seems to be always the case in these sort of players of genius biographies. There is a lot of love on display. There's a lot of great artists. Everyone from Joni Mitchell to guys from Metallica. Yeah, I mean, and. You get a, the best thing, of course, is you get to hear moments of the music, and you understand why these people were so amazed by what this guy was doing. So, if you are like me, relatively new to this guy's work, or if like me, you've been kind of reluctant to dip your toes into free jazz because Stanley Crouch or somebody else has convinced you that anything after Bop sucks, whatever. If you get an opportunity, I highly recommend watching this movie. If if it's not the pick of the week for me, it's it's certainly pretty damn close. damn close. 
Yeah, I, I just want somebody to do a, a really good Django Reinhardt documentary now because that'd be awesome. I'm surprised. No, it hasn't. I'm amazed they haven't done one. Hey, now we're going to move to kind of the, the there's comp- no one left to interview. <laughs> there's the problem. Probably a problem there. But it's never stopped anybody with any of the old blues musicians. It's like they're they're all dead of heroin overdoses as well. That yeah. never stopped anybody. Um, moving moving on, but let's, let's take on a. a, a a double whammy of uh, big studio releases. Oh, okay. And let's start with, you know, I think the movie that, weirdly, considering that this is part of the Marvel juggernaut, an institution that cannot fail to make cannot fail to make money at this point, um, Ant Man, which Ant-Man, I think yes. came, people were so angry that it lost. <laughs> It lost its original director. That they yes, were just like, uh, we're when going Edgar to right left. When Edgar Wright left, everybody was so mad. And they're like, this is going to be terrible. There's no way this can succeed. You need a visionary director like like Edgar Wright. You need somebody who's going to bring something completely quirky. And who Marvel ca- proved that wasn't true. Who cared? Yeah, it was like, who cares about Peyton Reed? Like, you know, nobody wants to watch I mean, this. Peyton Reed wasn't a hack either. No, no, no. I mean, Peyton Reed's done some great stuff in the past. Yeah. And, but, you know, this... You know... I, I think the what came out of all of this was that Edgar Wright was going to make a great Ant-Man film, but it wasn't going to fit in with right. Marvel's big scheme, which, well, that's all well and good. It would have been great. If it's not going to fit in with the big plan, you kind of got to wonder you know, how it was going to go down. It probably wouldn't have worked in the bigger context. I mean, we'll Plus, never Edgar know. Wright has a great deal of difficulty making films that turn a big profit. Uh, That's the bit people kind of... I I have a feeling that, and I read a little bit about this, so who knows what's true or not. Uh, And and by all accounts, both sides have been rather cordial about the whole thing. They're not going to commit commercial suicide and slag each other publicly. But it seems to me that you had a director who took a property that no one really, really believed in, but found something interesting in that material... Uh, found a way to kind of break the story and, you know, and adapt, uh, uh, establish a visual tone for it as well as a, a comedic tone. And that, I think, became the blueprint for what Marvel ultimately did. I, I don't think that this movie, in spite of what Edgar Wright says, would have been 1,000 miles away from what he did. No. It sounds like the big issue... and. and You've had a lot of directors complain about this in the Marvel house, uh, including Josh Whedon, which is, I want to make this movie, but now I've got people telling me, oh, by the way, you have to add this scene here. And while you've built up this momentum here, you've got to stop everything because you need to shoehorn this other subplot because we're going to establish that three movies from down the line. I think they had Marvel envisioned this puzzle piece with all these little knobs and bits that would interlock into the ultimate puzzle that is the MCU. And Edgar Wright was like, no, I'm more of an artist. I'm going to shave these off and make this nice little perfect movie. Whereas, yeah, what I, this is one of the most standalone of, it, the, uh, of, of the Marvel films to date. Yes, um, which makes the inclusions so much more noticeable. But fun at the same time. They're fun. But like, yeah, well, I entertaining. The, the, when the, Anthony Mackie shows up, you go, "Oh, he was the only Avenger they could afford to bring in." Yeah, for this, this is this is cheap extras. Day. You know, Robert Downey Jr. couldn't be bothered. And the basic plot is that uh, uh, Paul Rudd plays Scott Lang, who is a 
uh, a tech guy who uh, made made a little He's bit a of a hacker an, with a conscience. Made an error and has uh, just come out of jail. He, the one thing he wants to do is get back with his daughter Cassie, uh, which is a bit problematical because you know this is a guy who really nobody wants to hire because he's an ex-cop. Yeah. Um, so he's just sat in his apartment waiting to try and come up with, you know, a reason to, to you know, get on with his life. He's also developed a reputation. Yeah, that's as the this, problem. This, not quite an Edward Snowden level. I think they were trying to aim for that a little bit. Without, without going there. But yeah, he's like, he, he did it. He hacked into his employer's computer system not to make a profit but to expose them for what they were doing and he, he kind of was a cause celeb for a while but it didn't stop him from going to prison and now of course once he's in prison he somehow improbably makes friends with people and they go oh you are a great thief we should work together and of course when you're down on your luck and no one will hire you uh and not you can't even get a job at you know the blatant product placement Baskin Robbins. Yes, <laughs> uh, you can't even get a job there. Then what Who else can the you do? Product placement and come across as kind of assholes, which kind of like they're probably. Oh, I mean, a lot of it. A lot of why this this works is in these early sequences where it basically is just a. It's a you know, Paul a, Rudd a sim- comedy, a simple Paul Rudd heist movie. Paul Rudd, charming as ever, as yes, ever? a guy who who slogged away in the trenches of. Mid-card rom-coms for years, and also another ageless actor. Oh yeah, like he looks exactly the same as he did in the mid nineties. Yeah, um, and there's you know some great early sequence of this with him and Michael Pena as yeah. Luis and um, Tip Ti Harris as Dave, just hanging around in his apartment, uh, just being kind of lovable losers. Pena is just great in this. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're Rudd criminals. Is, they're the scum funny. of the earth, but they're so lovable. Well, they, they're kind of totally inept, they, which is kind of... Except know, for when they have to be. It's this weird thing. You, you never believe that these guys would ever commit a crime. By, you're like, why did they send you guys to prison? You're so damn lovable. Yeah, they have no rough edges whatsoever. They're complete... I would have actually kind of liked wide-eyed delivery, particularly in a couple of, of, yeah. re- couple of flashback uh, montage sequences, is Everybody just has talked about beautiful. his little voiceover comedy bit, so which Peyton Reed has insisted was actually his idea. Yeah, it, Everyone it, assumes it's Edgar Wright. No. It, it's the standout comic routine in the movie, and it actually was by the guy that everybody suddenly assumed was a hack because yeah. he stepped in to replace the great Edgar Wright. Well, I mean, up to this point, you really feel this is just, you know, this, you, this could be a straight-ahead um, kind of action rom-com heist movie. Yeah. And then this and is then when the Marvel Universe yes. comes in at full speed um, because you suddenly realize, like, oh, he's actually been set up to break into the house of the original Ant-Man. Yes. This is all very convoluted, by the way, and somehow convenient. However, Michael Douglas is having more fun on screen than I've seen him in years. Michael Douglas is the original Hank Pym, and this yeah. is a nice thing that they do. They kind of set up the fact that, mm-hmm. as has been hinted, you know, as it was shown in um, Captain America, that there's been a history of superpowers in the Marvel Universe before, and they played with the theme in <coughs> Man of, of Tony Stark going, well, you know, powers are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, you can't weaponize everybody. Well, Hank Pym realized this years before everybody yeah. else. 
and has hidden his pim particles, which is the formula he uses to uh, to shrink himself. And that you know, you, he it turns out as you go along that he was actually at, at certain points an agent of Shield. Yeah. That he and his wife were sent off on action adventure stuff in the 1960s, which is you know, and you get some lovely uh, you know, they're clearly setting up at some point they want to do that flashback. Yeah. He he is to the phase two of the Marvel unit MCU. He is to the phase two, or I'm, and I'm referring to Hank Pym. He's what Thor was in the first phase, which was here's a character that you don't think in the grand scheme of things is all that important and seems highly improbable. And yet, that's the character whose standalone films, they introduce all the elements that ultimately tie all this other stuff together, like other universes and cosmic cubes and all this stuff. The quantum realm. And quantum realm. And so now with Hank Pym, you know, you have these little thematic, you know, seeds that are going to lead into Civil War. You also have notions about, you know... uh, uh, Bhopal, who's not here with us today, explained this much better to me than I than I ever could uh, about this tiny little realm they're in. What do they call it? The uh, uh, help me out here when they shrink and they oh, enter the, this other dimension. That's the quantum realm. The quantum with realm hint, with, with hints that they might do something with the but microverse. But they're called like uh, they're called in the Agents of Shield. They're called another thing because they no longer have the name to call them what they were originally called or whatever. Yeah. This is all some very nerdy, geeky shit, people. And thankfully, I have some very smart friends who know comic books inside and out, and they kind of set me straight on this. So I'm doing a bad job so, explaining so, it. So, yeah, basically, what you yeah. what they set up is that you have that he he, he finds in in um, uh, Scott Lang, you know, the the guy who is probably the right person to be a superhero because he doesn't really want to be a superhero. Yes. He, you, know, you can kind of force him to be, and he's going to do the job because he's, you know... He, and he operates from to, the purest of motives. Yeah, he, and, he, and he's the guy who will probably want to give the suit back as soon as he's finished with it. Right. Because the one thing that they're trying to do is uh, get the the technology away from uh, Darren Cross, played uh, as wonderfully as ever by Corey Stoll. Who's in everything um, now. Much to the annoyance of Evangeline uh, Lilly as Hope Van Dyne, um, uh, Hank Pym's daughter, right. who is who spends the entire time going, why aren't you letting me do this? I'm clearly the person who should be doing this. You've actually got me training yeah. Scott, uh, uh, Scott Lang to be a superhero because he's, he's no good in a fight. He's kind of inept. Um, and But that brings up like the, the emotional heart of this, of why doesn't Hank Pym want his daughter to be a superhero and it actually makes an awful lot of sense and it ties in with the characters but at the end of the day you know what they managed with this was to create possibly the most fun uh all the way through fun marvel film today i would with the exception i would say of guardians of the galaxy and it suffers... Well, even Guardians gets darker in places. It, it gets dark, but you to know, me it, it was a lot more fun. It, you, it, it, when, when it, Darkness yeah. doesn't rule out fun yeah. Oh, me. it was still fun. But it, to yeah. me, they worked because they felt so standalone. Guardians more so. Yeah. And I know that that's going to get lost. Because with every film, it's going to get more and more tied into the other subsequent well, they're, they're films. Well, already, already making it pretty clear that um, uh, Scott Lang... Where when he comes back, he's going to be the guy who's like, "Holy crap, you're the Avengers!" Oh, Holy yeah. crap! That, that's the other thing. He's a fanboy. Yeah, he's he's, he's an Avengers fanboy. He is completely out of his depth, which is the great thing about Scott Lang in the comics that he's kind of going, 
when am I going to get kicked out? Because I know at some point I'm going to get kicked out. Well, this you know, is just, you, you know, have to be insecure if your power is to grow into the size of an ant. And I, I, um, what's really great about Which this, this movie nails. Yeah. It actually gets away with what it could be the silliest gimmick. That this is a, a guy who can shrink to really small and ride around on ants. And they yeah. make it work. And still and retain point, his proportionate strength. There is a point where one of the ants suffers a terrible fate. And I swear, when I saw this in the in the uh, the cinema originally, you could hear people go, "Oh yeah." I mean, it's actually a movie. It was like moment. the roach like, in Wall-E. It's like I can't make believe you. I can't believe you made me fall in love with an insect, and an insect that most people hate. Yeah, because <laughs> really, after the roach and possibly the mosquito, the ant is the most reviled of all insects. Nobody enjoys them when they come over to the picnic. Uh, but no, this film actually works so well as a standalone, except you you can feel, you can kind of feel the moments that Edgar Wright probably didn't want to be there, that he felt like he couldn't be part of. They, they don't pull you out of the movie. Nah. But the thing is with, and this is only me personally, I know a lot of people love these films and they're going to, and believe me, Marvel's not going to miss me if I don't show up at the theater opening weekend. There'll be plenty of other people there. But they, these films are starting to feel more and more like homework to me. I feel like I'm missing out if I haven't seen Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and five other movies and then some yeah. web strip, you know, or, or some like after post credits stinger. They're feeling like work. And this is why Ant-Man's so nice and refreshing because, one, it's an origin story. Unlike, say, Spider-Man or Superman or Batman, I never see. I never need to see another origin story for those guys ever again. I know. I know what happens to them. Ant-Man, I don't know too well. And also with Guardians, it's like, I don't know these characters that well, but you've established a very interesting universe with very likable characters, exciting stories, and enjoy it now while it lasts, because there will be a test after the next film. Yeah. As always, this is going to be, this is a a super packed uh, edition, because that's what Marvel does. Uh, It's also included in the Phase 2 box set uh, Mm. that's just shipping, uh, I think it's an Amazon exclusive, which, you know, I'm hoping ends up in my Christmas stocking, because, you know, nerdy. Uh, And if you want to buy it for one of your friends, you should buy it through Amazon. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's put that in the links as well. Uh, (laughs) uh, The the other Show them how much you love. Put a monetary value on your affection. (laughs) The other uh, big studio release that we're going to talk about uh, which you don't need to have done any homework for because although this is part of a franchise, this is actually the prequel. It is the, a prequel. The Minions from Despicable Me. Finally, I've never seen Despicable Me. You or actually any. should. I, I, it's I've way heard it's good. better than I. I I've heard I, it's good. When that came out, it but was. But I know was, who the Minions are because. I can't escape them. Yes. They're everywhere. T-shirts, They're toys, bubblegum. I see them all. They're obviously the breakout stars. And I saw, about a year or two ago, I saw a little clip online. I said, oh, I get it now. I know why these little bizarre yellow things are so popular. They're these cute little jelly bean-shaped mutated things, you know. Talking kind of, so, some kind of... Like a little pigeon English, I see. But there are... And I understand why this can work so well in so many different markets. Because some of the characters sound vaguely Japanese. Sometimes he says a word that sounds like Spanish. You know, there there are this plays so well to little kids 
who understand key phrases and understand the tone of these cute little things. But if you're like me and you didn't see Despicable Me and you've wondered, what the hell are these things? This is the movie that actually explains what they are. The Despicable Me and Despicable Me 2 didn't. So we we finally get the resolution, which is basically, they're kind of basically a parasite that that has evolved (coughs) to hang around and wait for the most despicable person around or over history like fish. They're basically, they're basically the... Um, when they saw the Tyrannosaurus, they go, they're the little kid it. who hangs out with the bully. Yeah, and they think loves it's hanging out with the wonderful. But here's the thing that, and again, I realize who this movie's made for. It's not made for me. So I'm thinking, okay, so you have a race that has evolved to follow the biggest, baddest, most despicable thing. This movie is set in the 60s. And I'm like... I'm sure there were plenty of candidates. It's like, yeah. why don't you go work for like, I don't know, you know, uh, Pol Pot or somebody, you know, but no, they're going to, they, the, the thing that's amazing to me is like, they don't have a single mean bone in their bodies. No. They're more mischievous. So it's sort of a little kid's version of being bad. So the, and I understand why that's appealing. And the, the idea is that they've been stuck at the North Pole for years after their mm-hmm. last, uh, last uh, uh, leader got eaten or big dropped boss. into a... They always have to find the big bus. Big bus, big bus. Big bus. Uh, got dropped into a volcano. Because that's the other thing. They tend to have this unfortunate ability to not kill their boss, but to put them in a position where they ain't going to live much longer. I was surprised by how many people died in this movie. Quite a lot. Quite a lot. And it's all done in a very comic, comic sort of charming way. Uh, so three of them are, are yeah. basically go out into the into the world... Uh, Kevin, Stuart, and Bob to find new big boss, and uh, they they manage to find themselves in the middle of, well, basically the gathering of supervillains, villain con, and then become completely entranced by the glorious villainy uh, of um, Scarlet Overkill. Voiced by Sandra Bullock in yeah, her best performance this year by far. Yeah. Although uh, I really like John Hamm as her sidekick yeah. as, and husband. Uh, that, Almost recognizable, but yeah, it's yeah. still John Hamm. This, uh, this is <coughs> kind of glorious, cool Britannia, 1960s, yes. very mod. mod. She becomes obsessed with the, royal, with, with the uh, crown jewels and she wants them to steal the crown for them so she can become queen. It's kind of a very... It, 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 much as Despicable Me was had that kind of same retro charm, this really ramps that up to eleven. Yes. And I was a little bit concerned because I like Despicable Me, I like Despicable, uh, Despicable Me too, and I thought, well, this is going to be a spin-off that's not that's just going to try and get by on the comedic charm mm-hmm. of the Minions. Well, the Minions are pretty fucking charming, and they're they are, you know, they, they, you know, they're, you know, this is light comedy. Um, with a little death here and there. Yeah. And some subversive humor, which I appreciated. There's one moment where the minion with the big goggles is obviously a, supposed to represent a pair of breasts. I thought that was clever. I will ruin that gag for you, but yeah. There's also points where they're, they're in a torture chamber and supposed to be tortured. Oh, oh yeah. There's, a, there's actually one of the best gallows sequences you will see this year. It's really quite hilarious. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of, for me, the, the, I have the same response. The thing that I most appreciated about this movie was the stuff that was going to fly over these little kids' heads, because it's literally before their time. It's before my time. Uh, that 
it was so smart to set it in the 60s. In fact, yeah, Get, get Smart is almost a reference point yeah, for, it, for a lot of this. The Cool Britannia, it's a great excuse to lo- use a lot of great British invasion rock. It's at the height of the Cold War. It ties into the James Bond spy era. I mean, all of these elements are so potent and so recognizable to audiences of a certain age. I'm pretty sure most little kids won't get it. I'd like but to think it's to. there for the adults. I think that's the thing. It's one of those thing, films you'll almost grow uh, grow into in some yeah. ways. You'll be, you know, you'll appreciate the, it more. Come for the minions. Come for the spy action. Yeah. Again, you know, good solid release. Um, it's has good babysitter. Three. You uh, won't hate yourself while watching mini it with movies, your kids. Uh, a a making of mm-hmm. called Behind the Goggles, which kind of explains some of the genesis. And you know, this does actually feed straight into. Uh, Despicable Me. You'll actually, you actually, you won't know this, but you get a little, little hint of Despicable Me. Right well, I, I figured that out. I, I do know. Well, again, yeah. won't ruin anything. But I see how it ties neatly into this. This is a prequel in the truest sense. Yeah. Solid, a solid little animation. Uh, you know, the yeah. the three D is actually really good on this. Yeah, and, and uh, much better voice cast than I would have anticipated. Yeah, and like I said, having uh, having sat through uh, Michael Keaton's in this, yeah. I think there. I mean, there's a lot of great people in this having, cast. Having sat through uh, our brand is Crisis, I can definitely tell you this is the best performance uh, by Sandra Bullock this year. <laughs> anyway, that that brings us to uh, the end of the list or part one, uh, which is this week's. Give away! Oh, what are we giving away? We, oh, we yes. are giving away Amy Schumer live at the Apollo, oh, oh, her HBO comedy special. Thank you for for thank you for clarifying. We are not giving away Amy Schumer. No, she is not ours to give. No, and you're not worthy anyway. Yeah, uh, who clearly is on a, a great year. Uh, oh, on the yeah. back of Trainwreck, where she really kind of, uh, you know, her TV series has raised her profile extraordinarily and has done some great stuff. Trainwreck proved she has serious chops as a scriptwriter, uh, as a leading actress who can actually hold a film together, can bounce off other people. Also a great talent scout because there's some great performances um, in that film, including some you really will not expect. But this is, you know, Amy Schumer, where she started off as a stand-up. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, this is not her best stand-up. I mean, Uh I kind of prefer her earlier stuff where she was completely unapologetic where she was one of the meanest comedians out there you know uh, she's softened in some ways but she's also well yeah you know she's her material is a little deeper than she's kind of not unlike Sarah Silverman I mean part of it I think not to take an iota away from her talent but I think part of it comes from a shock from a traditional sort of there's the shock of a traditional male dominated form where you're having a woman talk very frankly about things that you don't normally see female comics talk about. Yeah. And she herself in this uh, in this video says, you know, people will label me a sex comedian. If a guy did this joke, he would just be a comedian. Yeah. You know, but she's I do it and it's pointed. a sex comedian. Yeah, she's very pointed about the state of the industry. I mean, this is, you know, she's uh, she's one of the best stand-ups out there at the moment. And, yeah. I, you know, this is a great opportunity to... Have a, a this is a slightly longer version uh, of this of the HBO special, uh, so there's extra material in here. Uh, well worth it. Um, Absolutely. You, you, and you have a, a chance of winning this. So good and simple. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter at one of us net. Use the hashtag Amy Giveaway, um, and you know a lot of her stuff is really inappropriate humour. So yeah. I just want you to tell us 
the most inappropriate film you <laughs> saw with your family? I thought you were going to ask them to tell them the most in, tell you the most inappropriate thing they'd ever done. Well, we, they've only that got could a, be more interesting. They've only got 140 characters, and we don't want to get sued. Uh, <laughs> but enough. the most inappropriate film that you saw with your family, you get extra points if you actually saw it across the Christmas holiday. So yeah, <laughs> um, follow us at one of us net on Twitter. Uh, hashtag Amy Giveaway, and you can own. Uh, Amy Schumer live at the live at the Apollo. It's that simple. Well, thank you, Marco. We got through another week. Yeah. Uh, hope everybody has a fantastic Christmas. We will um, talk to you in the new year. Uh, <laughs> Marco is suddenly being attacked by the cat who has decided to eat his hair. Uh, so I think that's our sign. It's time to play me off, Johnny. So in the uh, in the classic way that we always do it, we shall bid you a, a goodbye and a merry Christmas. God um, bless us, everyone. Yep. Um, you blank on the ending. No, I've not blanked on the ending. <laughs> as, as, a, as, Brian always, as Brian always great. says, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we reviewed them all, and I think we pretty much did. Merry Christmas. See you in 2016. <laughs> <laughs>